0: Okay, I think we're on and ready to go. As we said a little bit earlier, this today is the Feast of the Epiphany. And we certainly want to commemorate that today. And uh, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 2. We'll start there. Lord, as we open our Bibles today, as we always do, we rely on your inspiration as we study the Scripture, that you not only help us to understand it, from a knowledge point of view, but that you put these words deep inside of us and see what we can learn and what we can apply from the story we read today. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. So in Matthew chapter 2, we read the story of something that happened probably a couple of years after Jesus was born, the visit of the Magi, and uh, this is called Epiphany Sunday because... Epiphany means appearance or manifestation, and it commemorates the time that the Christ child was visited by the Magi, or the wise men from the East. And in other words, he appeared to the Gentile world. He had already appeared to the Jews, to the shepherds, and so on, but now he appears to the Gentiles. And we're going to read this passage here, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 2. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Quoting Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. So it's unique to the Gospel of Matthew, this long account of the wise men of Uh, Jesus traveling first to Egypt and then back to uh, Nazareth. And uh, it's curious that Matthew stresses this account so much. And I think the reason he does it is because his audience that he wrote his gospel to was the Jews. And Matthew took great pains to draw out prophecies from the Old Testament And to show how they applied to Jesus, because he wanted to prove to the Israelites, to the Jews, that this is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And his birth fulfilled so many prophecies. Uh, First of all, you know, that uh, he would be born in Bethlehem, which turned out to be the town that David was born in. And Jesus was going to take the throne of David, and he was going to rule in David's throne. So that fulfilled that prophecy, the prophecy of the star that the wise men saw as they traveled, that guided them to the proper location. That's in Numbers 24, verse 17. The prophecy of Jesus being called out of Egypt, which is kind of strange. But in Hosea 11, verse 1, you know, Jesus is being compared to Moses. For the Jews, Moses was the greatest of the patriarchs. And what Matthew is trying to teach them, that just as Moses was called out of Egypt by God at the time of the Exodus, so Jesus, who is actually greater than Moses, was also called out of Egypt, just like Moses was, but for even a greater purpose. And then finally, the, uh, the death, Herod putting to death the young boys in the area of Bethlehem And then the uh, prophecy here from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, about the mother's weeping. So, in other words, what Matthew wanted to do was to show his audience, the Jews, that, yeah, this is the Messiah who fulfilled so many of these prophecies. And that's why I think that Matthew really stressed the uh, story of Jesus and the visit of the wise men, the Magi. You know, these individuals, we don't know how many there were, the wise men, and exactly where they were from. Most scholars think that they came from the area of Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, or perhaps Babylon, uh, perhaps even as far away as China. They traveled a long distance. Most feel that their trip was somewhere around 900 miles, that's the distance from Youngstown, to Orlando, Florida. And their travel, of course, would have been on camelback. So can you imagine hitching you up to a camel here and saying, okay, see you in uh, Orlando. <laughs> Head on out. Perhaps a six-month journey? We don't know exactly. But it was an arduous trip for them. And we don't know very much about these men. They were wise men. They were magi. They would have been known for... Uh, their wisdom, they would have been known for their education, they would have been teachers, perhaps rulers of some kind. Some think that they may have been kings of one sort or another. But they put aside their life in pursuit of this newborn child that they understood to be the king of the Jews. This birth and this young child was so important to them that it overwhelmed them. It seems that somehow God gave them a certain amount of faith to pursue this journey and to find this child so that they can praise him and worship him. And they brought uh, gifts along, which, you know, we just went through a a baby shower, and I know the fries went through a baby shower, and in the baby showers we had, we didn't see any uh, gold or myrrh or frankincense. (laughs) So you think, wow, how about a rattle or a bopper to stick in his mouth or some diapers? No. No. These, of course, were gifts that kind of represented what Jesus was going to experience in his life. And I'm sure that they were inspired by God. Gold, of course, was appropriate for a king. If you were going to come to worship a king, you brought him a gift of gold. Frankincense was uh, something that a priest would use at at the temple to worship God, it was a type of incense that was burned. Myrrh, of course, was a substance used to clean and anoint a dead body. So these gifts were brought to Jesus, not that he as a baby were going to use them right away, but inspired by God, they represented what Jesus' life would entail. And you always wondered, well, I thought about whatever happened to that gold? Because you never hear about it again. Maybe Joseph and Mary used it, to uh, fund their trip to Egypt and then back to Israel, and maybe it helped them establish a, a house when they when they moved there. What about the the myrrh? Do you think that Mary maybe saved that? So when the time came for Jesus to die on the cross, it was one of the spices used to anoint his body. Could very well be. And frankincense, of course. Who knows? Maybe they donated it to the priest at the temple or whatever the case may be. But they were literal gifts that the, uh, the child was given. So, a wonderful story. You know, we kind of rehearse it every Christmas time. But so what? what? What does that mean for us today? Is it just history that we're studying? What lesson can we probably take from this story Like I said, these men were moved by God and they made the decision to pursue this trip and this journey to discover this child. You know, it seems that they felt a need in their life to make this trip, to go through all the effort, all the arduous journey that they had, because they were going to find something that they needed in their life. And they had this encounter with the Christ child the future king of the Jews, this special person, there's a lesson for us to learn there. Because we are all on a journey, aren't we, in this life. Now, we as Christians who have become children of God, literal children of God, our journey is toward God. You know, we live in a very secular world that for the most part is anti-God, It seems that most of the things happening in this world, be it entertainment, be it politics, be it uh, the media, whatever the case may be, leans away from God. In some cases, it's 180 degrees opposed to God. But here we are in this, uh, this culture seeking God. We're pursuing God, a relationship with God. And you know what? There are a lot of stumbling blocks and a lot of roadblocks we run into along the way. But there's something about the attitude of the wise men that we need to learn from and we need to emulate in our lives. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13... Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, this was the scripture read during the uh, announcements, the scripture of the week, if you will, but it's something that God said to his people uh, while they were in captivity. Israel and then Judah later learned lessons. Instead of obeying God, they disobeyed him. Instead of worshiping the true God, they worshiped false gods and pagan gods and idols And because of that, God allowed them to be conquered by other nations and taken into captivity as prisoners of war. And they remained in captivity for many, many years. And even in the case of the Israelites, they never really came back from captivity. They became what is commonly called the lost tribes, never came back to their homeland. But God was trying to encourage them in captivity. And he said this to them in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 13 talking about the time when their captivity will end and they will turn to God again. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So there's something, I think, in the story of the wise men, considering the effort that they put forth, they were seeking this child with all their heart with all the means that they had available to them, they were giving it their full effort. This is the same thing that God required from his people Israel and Judah. And I think it goes without saying that this is the effort that God requires from us. That we are to seek him with our whole heart. I wonder sometimes in my own life, And hopefully you you consider the same things as on a daily basis, we are doing just that. Or if our relationship with God is kind of a casual thing, uh, a convenient thing, do we worship God out of convenience and do we seek him out of convenience or when we really need him? And then as uh, Pastor Dave mentioned earlier, when our prayers are not answered, we question whether God is really there. Or if he cares anything about us, or if he's really involved in our life. We are told to seek God with all of our heart, and he will be there. Jesus said something very similar in Luke 11 and in verse 9. Luke 11, verse 9, speaking to his followers. To seek God takes effort on our part initially. God is there, He's available, He's always close by, but we must seek Him. We must put forth the effort, like the wise men did, to travel. Thankfully, we don't have to travel today, because God is with us, no matter where we are. But we have to take the initiative and seek Him. He says in Luke 11, beginning in verse 9, So I say to you, ask Okay, you take the initiative, you take the first step when it comes to your relationship with God, and ask. And you know what? It will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, who receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So you see... The responsibility is on our shoulders when it comes to God. We have to do the asking. We have to do the seeking. We have to do the knocking, and God will respond. If we don't do those things, how can we expect a relationship with God to grow and develop? So what we need to do today is take a look at our personal lives and ask ourselves the question, Is God the most important thing to us? And if he is, are we giving him our full effort? Our full effort. We need to make sure that when it comes to God, our heart is not divided. You know, that's something that David prayed about uh, in the Old Testament. I want to turn to a psalm here in uh, Psalm 86 and verse 11. Let's turn back there. Psalm 86 and verse 11. So are you putting forth the effort on a daily basis to seek God with all your heart? With a full heart focused on God, He is first and foremost in our life. He's the one who has to come before certainly any physical thing in our life. Remember Jesus once taught that He has to come before even our kids, our loved ones on earth. He is more important than they are. Certainly, we consider our family members to be important. We would do anything for them. But what about God? Where does he fit in? Notice how David prayed here in Psalm 86, verse 11. He says, Teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. An undivided heart. You know, I think that the problem with a lot of Christians today is when it comes to God, we have a divided heart. (laughs) Part of our heart is for God, but another part, or maybe in some cases a bigger part of it, is for other things. Other pursuits, other interests, other desires that we have. Might even be an addiction of some kind. That seems to come first before even God but David said I pray that you don't allow my heart to be divided between you and something else I want to have an undivided heart so that I can seek you with my whole heart and you know what it takes effort to seek God with your own heart with your whole heart for God to come first in your life you have to start putting aside other things And considering them to be of lesser importance. Or maybe in some cases we're involved in certain things that we have to get out of totally. If we're going to see God with our whole heart. And you know what? I can't speak for you and you can't speak for me. You have to look into your own heart as I have to myself. And it's wonderful that we're here today. It's great. We're here to praise God. But are we doing it with our whole heart? Like I said, that's a question that only we can answer individually between ourselves and God. And if we're not worshiping God with our whole heart, we have to ask, seek, knock. If you're not willing to put forth quality time to seek the Lord, you will have very little, if any, spiritual strength and understanding coming from him. And you know what? There are Christians that I know who struggle in their lives. You know, they come to church when, when things are just ideal, when, when things are perfect, when the weather's perfect, when they've gotten enough sleep, when there's nothing else on their calendar, they somehow find time for God occasionally. And there are other people I know who are at church on a regular basis. You can count on them being there, no matter what. You know, I try to make it a point to be here every week unless I'm really sick, I mean, if I have a fever, I'm not coming to church. Or if I'm in the hospital, I'm not coming to church. But you know what? Pretty much every other time, I'm here. Because I'm trying to show to God and to myself that I'm seeking him with my whole heart. I mean, it has become a lifestyle for me to worship God, to participate in whatever the church is doing. You might say, well, yeah, you're the pastor, right? In spite of that. I've been in the church before I was a pastor, and I'm sure I'll be in the church after I'm a pastor, and I want to have the same heart for God, an undivided heart, where I see God with my whole heart. So how's that going to look in your life? How do you see God with your whole heart? Well, let me give you three suggestions here on how to approach that as you look at your own life. The first step you have to do is you have to decide whom you intend to serve. We're told many times in the Bible that you can't serve God and something else. You can't be a bond slave to God and something else. I think it was Jesus who said God and mammon, money. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of wealth, those two don't go together. And you have to make a commitment. You have to make a commitment. If it's to God, then make your commitment to God. A person torn between the world and allegiance allegiance to Christ turns out to be miserable because you'll enjoy neither, your allegiance to God or your allegiance to the world. You can't be halfway. Remember in the book of Revelation, it talks about the one church area being lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You have a divided heart. You have an allegiance to both God and the world. And what does God say about those people? I will spew you out of my mouth. Remember, it was Joshua in the Old Testament who said to the people, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve The Lord. We will serve the Lord. You know, when you bring a new child into the world, as we've kind of been blessed here in a couple of occasions with our grandchild and the Fry's grandchild, I know I was speaking to Pastor Dave before services. We want to impress upon these new parents that if you want your child to grow up in the Lord, You, as parents, have to be the ones to set the example. You, as parents, need to be dedicated to the Lord if you want your child to grow up as a Christian. You know, you can't just hope for the best and pray that somehow God will do something and magically your child will turn out to be just a real strong Christian if you yourselves aren't, as you you as parents are. So, uh, you know, we have a, uh, a ceremony at church here that we do. We haven't done it for quite some time. When a child is born, the parents are able to dedicate that child. We have the blessing of little children, we always called it. And what that is about is it's not just a matter of bringing your child and say, okay, God, here he is or here she is. You know, we want your blessings on this child. You know, really the reason for the blessing of little children or the dedication ceremony is for the parents to come before God and before witnesses to say, Father, you know, we ask your blessings on our child. We, we want to bring him up or her up as a Christian, and we ask your help in that. And, you know, and all the, the, the church members say amen, and, you know, we will pray for you as new parents, you know, that you have the power, the strength, the wisdom that God gives you all these things so that you can raise your child in the Lord, okay? So it's got to be a decision from the parents to do that. The church doesn't say, give me that kid, we're going to bless him, you know. It's the parents' decision, so we encourage that. We say, the church is is here for you. We will do that for you, but it's a, a matter for parents to make that decision, and you know what? Becoming a parent is a shock because you realize it's not just husband and wife now, but there's another person that has magically appeared. You know, you have brought into existence a person that was not there before, a brand new person. You know, we're, we're created in the image of God, and I think one of the, the, the meanings of that is we have the ability to create. We can bring into existence a person that had never existed before, just like God did. Okay, now that that person's here, what happens next? Whoa, (laughs) I never thought about that. You have the responsibility as a parent now to raise this child, and if you are a Christian, to raise them in the Lord. Because you want what's best for this kid. You want all the blessings of God and for them to live a good life where they're respectable and, uh, you know, citizens and, and uh, law-abiding citizens. And God will help you with that. But you must first determine now that you're going to commit yourself to God in raising this kid. And God will be there with you. And, you know, you've you got to do something. Because we live in a secular world that is anti-God. And pretty soon, they're going to start running into interference in their life. And I remember we raised four kids, and we had a lot of difficulties, especially when they started school. You know, when they were real young, it was what their friends in the neighborhood told them, and we had to be there as parents to say, no, that's not true. That is not true. We're going to live God's way. This is a Christian home, and we're going to live to the best of our ability the way God tells us to live. And then when they get into school, there are other difficulties, especially when you have uh, people in authority like some teachers telling them contrary to what they've always, always believed about God, there is a God, and so on. And I'll tell you what, if they have the chance to go to college, when you get to college, that's like hitting a brick wall for a Christian. And if you're not prepared, if you don't have somebody to help you through that, we have so many kids that are raised in the church, and i 'm not just talking about our congregation, but they reach that age, and all of a sudden they 're gone and The next thing you know, they 're telling their parents, oh i 've decided to be an atheist i don 't believe in God anymore," because they, they you know are, are dealing with interference and roadblocks and stumbling blocks of all sorts. And they're looked down upon and ridiculed and persecuted for being a Christian in those situations. They need help. They need parents who are strong in the faith. They need parents who are followers of Jesus Christ who guide them through those difficult times in life. So, yeah, it's a big responsibility being a parent, a lot bigger than I ever thought. But then, when, when it happens to you, you've got to make a decision. How am I going to raise my, my kid? It's not going to happen automatically, not by any means. But you need there to be there to answer their questions, to pray with them, to start off when they're real little, like we did. My wife, every night when we put them to bed, she'd be reading them stories from the Bible, finding whatever helps you can so that they learn these things. So the first thing you have to do to not have a divided heart is to make a decision for yourself. What's it going to be? you're going to go half God and half world, it's not going to work. I'll tell you that in advance. You can't serve both God and mammon or God and anything else. And if you're serious about it, you know what? You're going to have to change. You're going to have to show God your dedication. That's one good thing about the blessing of little children ceremony. You're coming up in front of witnesses now, and you're saying to God in front of all these witnesses, We're going to do our best to raise this child in the church. And according to God's word, and and God help us do that. And he will. He will. And and just figure the next 18 years, that's your job. You're evangelizing. You're evangelizing your children. That's your mission field for now. And it's a lot harder than you, you give it credit for. But with God, all things are possible. So you need to be praying on a regular basis. Lord, help me. You need to be studying your word. Okay, if I'm going to teach my child how to live, I better find out first and foremost for myself what God expects of me. So I'm reading my Bible on a regular basis. I'm worshiping God because that's got to be a part of it on a regular basis, showing and reminding myself that God is number one. I'm here to praise Him. I'm here to, to worship Him with my giving. That's my life now. If I'm truly a child of God... So you take the initiative. You do the seeking. That's where it starts. And then God will back you up. He'll be there for you. And the second thing, after making that commitment, close the door to what divides your loyalty to God. What is it? Take an inventory. Do a search in your life. What's keeping me from going to church on a regular basis? What's keeping me from praying to God? What's keeping me from studying His Word? and all the other things that I should be doing. Close the door on what divides your loyalty. You know, there are stories about ancient warriors through history. Leader, you know, they they go to a country to invade and kind of colonize it, and they sail up in a ship to the shore of this island or this country, and as soon as they all get off the ship, what does the, the, the leader do? He sets the ship on fire. There's no going back. There's no return. Okay, we're here. We're going to do the job <laughs> that we've been given to do. If it's fighting, if it's battling, if it's you know teaching, if it's colonizing this place that we've been sent to, but there's no going back. It's a matter now of conquering or being conquered. And once you leave the door open to go back then chances are you will go back. Close the door on the past so that there is but one direction to go forward. So again, you commit your life to God initially, then you've got to follow through. Amen. And you've got to start getting rid of whatever is going to keep you from achieving this goal. Whatever is going to keep you from developing and building this relationship, personal relationship with Jesus Christ in your life. You're relying on him. He says, come to me. <laughs> come to me with all your problems. Come to me with your needs. I'm here for you. Don't find your help anyplace else. Because those other things don't really give you the help that, that you need. They're fake. They're phony. You know, some people think, well, you know, i got to have my uh, cigarettes I've got to have my dope. I've got to smoke my marijuana I, or something heavier than that. Uh, these are the things that get me by. No, they're not. It's God who's going to get you by. Amen. So make the commitment. Close the door on what divides your loyalty. And thirdly, get involved. Far too many individuals choose to follow the Lord without getting involved in His cause. And you know what? We have plenty of opportunities here to get involved. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, Scott has been taking over the uh, computer work here, and he's done a fabulous job. The uh, bulletins you've got today for the first week, those were produced by Mary Now, the new member of our congregation who has a talent for that sort of thing, and she's doing a great job. What do you want to get involved? What do you want to do? How do you want to get involved? If we don't have an area for you to get involved, tell me what your interests are. We'll create something new. We'll create a new ministry that you can start, and we'll back you up and support you. But there are needs. Uh, We've got people here who are kind of overworked. So let me know what you want to get involved with. And you know what? The more you're involved, the more easy it's going to be for you to be committed. We need each other. The Bible says that the body of Christ is held together by people who have been gifted, people who have been given talents. Just as the human body is held together with muscles and sinews which keep it connected, the body of Christ is a fellowship of believers who need each other. So get involved in something, whether it's Bible study, the music group, the sound group, the kitchen, a lot of you involved in the kitchen, and that's great. Be part of a team. Share your heart and discover that there are others who have faced the same issues which have divided your heart, and there is healing and help for the person who is honest enough to admit to having a heart that's divided. So at some point in our journey, you know, our heart's been divided in one way or another. But by the grace of God, we've been kind of pulled back to center, and, you know, we grasp this fellowship as something very near and dear to us, and it is. It's a lifeline in a world that is ungodly. I don't know about you, but I so look forward to being here every week because I'm going to hear from God's Word. I'm going to fellowship with people who are in the same situation I am, who love the Lord and are trying to, you know, make their way through the trials and tribulations of this world in their own lives, dealing with all sorts of issues. We're here to pray for one another. We're here to encourage one another. Because we need one another. Not only do we need God, but this is why he's created the church and the body of Christ. His presence here on earth. Even though he exists in each of us, when we come together like this, it's a special special event and a special thing. So, the Feast of Epiphany. Like I said, a nice Christmas story about wise men traveling to follow Jesus or to find him and to worship him. They were seeking him. There's a lesson for us to learn from them. Look at all the effort that they went through to journey. We're going through a life of journey, too. And in our fellowship, what a wild journey it's been. Some of you have been around 30 and 40 and more years, 50 years. What a journey it's been, man. Keep your seatbelt on. It's been a wild and woolly trip. But here we are in an ever closer and an ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. There were times in our experience where we were so involved in other stuff that Jesus Christ wasn't hardly mentioned at all. But God, because we were seeking him and sometimes making mistakes along the way and some of our practices and some of our beliefs, he straightened us out. Why? Because we were seeking him all along. We were seeking him and he guided us back to where we needed to be. And I don't know about you, but I never want to go back to where we were before. I like it here. I like knowing Jesus. And I have no, no problem expressing my love for him, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So let's continue on this journey. Let's never be distracted. Let's never grow to have a divided heart. Let's give our all in all. Let's put forth our solid, full effort to pursue Jesus Christ. And you know what? That pursuit never ends. It never ends. So thanks be to God that we are here, and we do love him. Lord, as we studied your word today, thank you for making it real for us. We don't know who these men were. We don't know where they came from and where they went. All we know is that they were seeking you, Lord. And help us to learn from their example of always be seeking, not letting anything get in the way, of having an undivided heart and seeking you with our whole heart and soul. Lord, help us to continue to learn what that means to us individually. And thank you for the church, because here we are a group of people all on the same journey toward you, toward heaven, toward salvation, something that we have already achieved through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we ask your blessing in this new, war, uh, this new year. We don't know what it's going to hold, but we do know this. No matter what we face, you are there right at our side, and you will strengthen us and you will help us to accomplish whatever your will is. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.